Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Laura Owens. An eponymous survey of Owens's work since the mid-1990s is on view in Los Angeles at the Museum of Contemporary Art. It's at the museum's Geffen Contemporary location through March 25th next year. The exhibition, which was curated by Scott Rothkopf and originated at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York City, features about 60 paintings. The show is accompanied by a book published by the Whitney. Amazon offers it for $30. Throughout her career, Laura Owens has made paintings that address art history, how paintings are made, how images are produced, and how painters have left marks on canvas, often doing all that within single artworks. Her previous museum exhibitions have come at MOCA back in 2003, the Fabric Workshop and Museum in Philadelphia, the Bonifanten Museum Maastricht, Kunsthal Zurich, the Secession in Vienna, and at the Wattis Institute for Contemporary Arts at the California College for the Arts in San Francisco. On the second segment, Mark Lamster discusses his new biography, The Man in the Glass House, Philip Johnson, Architect of the Modern Century. Before we get to this week's show, a special plea, one that I don't give often enough, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download the podcast. It'll help new listeners find the show. Thanks. Laura Owens, after the break. A celebration of the extraordinary artist, activist, and teacher Charles White is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Charles White, a retrospective, is the first opportunity in over 30 years to see such a wide range of his work, which was strongly committed to powerful images of African Americans, from historical heroes and icons to ordinary men and women. The New Yorker says, quote, The urgency of Charles White's message, our shared humanity, could not arrive at a more critical time. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Being Here With You, Estando Aquí Contigo, 42 Artists from San Diego and Tijuana, at its downtown location through February 3, 2019. The exhibition brings together work by 42 artists and collectives living and working in the San Diego and Tijuana region. Presenting both early career and established artists, Being Here With You, Estando Aquí Contigo, highlights distinctive practices shaping conversations and communities in the binational region and beyond. For more information, visit mcasd.org. And we're back. Laura Owens, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Since nearly the beginning of your career, there's been a certain elusiveness in your work. You've been as interested in playing with and and often poking fun at the grid as you have been in, say, nature and landscape or fauvism and lots of other things. And we'll talk more about each of those things a little later on. But first, did you make a conscious decision early on in either your your academic experience or when you kind of, you know, emerged from academia to be an artist to embrace a kind of fluidity and shape-shiftiness or did it kind of happen more organically than that? Well, I distinctly remember even pre-art college academia just deciding to wanting wanting to be an artist, wanting to go into art because there was no answer, there was no end point and I think just the sort of ability to do it in any way you want. There is no prescribed way was like the appeal of being an artist. I assume when you say shapeshifty, you mean looking maybe like doing a painting that looks a certain way or looks at a certain thing. And then like the next painting might look different. Is that what you mean? Or Yeah. Or, you know, if, if, if somebody looks at your 
more recent paintings that play with grids and that riff on grids and looks back at say what you did at cedar sinai just the year before or or looks back at how you've played with children's literature or look back at your paintings of trees and tree limbs and tree branches there's a there's a an eager curious ambitious fluidity that i think that not all artists are able to do you mean a fluidity like okay i'm gonna look at a tree branch and then let's like kind of like go in every direction with it or do you mean like to jump around to those different things kind of the latter and 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 to do both of those things with kind of the same intelligence but with kind of a very different even palette i often think about biography and painting you know having this intractable, you know, like I think of like Van Gogh, like you have this situation where this person's biography sort of lays on top of every painting you're looking at. And even though I, I come to painting having kind of studied early on and a sort of Hans Hoffman model, modernism, and just believing that objects have their own uh, ability to shape shift in and of themselves, you know, like you may see a a painting, you know, in 1996, and then you see it in 2006, and it's a wholly different painting. I mean, it literally didn't change, but it's like the context of your yourself meeting that painting changes, and where it might be hanging, and who, and what has happened in between, and just so I guess. But what I always think about is the narratives and anecdotes and things that get laid on top of it, and I always it was thinking about early ideas of you know, what is feminist painting and where do we find painting by women in the museum? And, it, you know, I was looking in the textile department and at anonymous paintings. And so the idea of biography was sort of like a curious one. That, and then I think because of that, I, I thought this is shiftable. I'm a different person from 1996 to even to 1997. And I won't be the same person in the future. And can you even get away from yourself if you try to make a painting or make an object that's not your painting. I, I guess I came to the conclusion it's pretty hard. So I thought, why not try? And it I also just made it interesting for me to be like teaching myself to paint in different ways because I ultimately I'm like a bi- the biggest like fangirl of painting. Like I love take me to any museum in the world of the local Seiko main historical museum or in Tokyo I went there and found the Marie Lauren Sun paint uh, museum which is in a hotel you know it's like somebody's it it ended and then someone retook all the work and put it in this hotel in the lot in like a kind of side room off the lobby and they own probably hundreds of her paintings and like a couple you know I don't know 20 or 30 or up at a time they're all amazing there she's not like some big deal in art history but like blew my mind you know like or take me to my kids auditorium where 10 kids have made like three different paintings all together at different points in time to make this sort of collage weird mural that I'm just like whoa and the policeman is this big and the you know the landscape is this big and they painted this green and I'm just you know so anyway I I got in a habit or kind of a mode of saying you know I really love this particular 11th century, for example, 11th century Gibbon master painter, or maybe I could teach myself to paint 
these ink paintings of monkeys and and reinvent this sort of image or paintings that I um, that I really love in in a different way and I think it's evident in the work. I mean, you know, I you mentioned Van Van Gogh and the connection to biography. Kind of the one. I mean, I'm doing the, the one painter I told myself I wasn't going to mention when when we were talking was Gerhard Richter, who who floats between things and and whose love of pushing or squeegeeing or whatever paint around a canvas comes through in everything he does. And I, you know, I don't think you do anything particularly Richterian. But the joy in the medium and in mining the possibilities of, you know, the four-cornered canvas on, on a wall lives in your, you know, that spirit is in your work the way it is in his. Yeah, I think Richter's probably in a positive-negative way, definitely a permission slip or an influence because he's someone who obviously, you know, I think I went to the new museum and saw, I feel like I saw the Bader Meinhof series in New York. I don't know if it was shown there. Something I saw of his. It's, it's in MoMA's collection. Well, I feel like I saw something of his at the New Museum, like in the 90s. And I feel like I was like, you know, following his work a little bit. I was really a fan of Polka, which is a different mode of the same kind of idea. But just this idea that he can switch modes in painting pretty easily. And, you know, there's a bigger conceit that's going on that looking at his work, you know, it all is contained within, you know, the same person made it, but it's like all contained within the same. It adds up, you know, you think about the Batter-Meinhof series when you're looking at the abstract work, you, you, you know, it's in your memory. Yeah. That's one of the, 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 the fun things about, I mean, artists have careers in front of us, right. And, and the really good ones have 30, 40, 50 year careers in front of us. And there are too many professions like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's pretty awesome. And you see, you go to these, you know, like Charlene's show, she's kicking everyone's ass. I mean... Charlene Von Heil, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, and this feels like her last show, this new, the work she's making the last two years just feels like she's just getting started, like a whole new thing. Your work kind of feels like that too. And in, in, in recent years, you've been making works with a digital projector and, and software and the work, your work has always kind of been in part about how paintings were made, making paintings that are often about how paintings are made. Had you always been interested in making paintings about how paintings were made? Or was there something about uh, beginning to play with projection and software that that made that more interesting to you? Well, it's just it really developed naturally over twenty years. I mean, I I think I've told this story before. Like my friend Monique Prieto and I were in school, and she was looking for a non toxic way to paint, and so she purchased this like painter software. And I like we had we also were I think it was the time when like kid pics would come with your software package from if you bought a Mac. So we had these primitive, you know, image editing tools, painting tools. And then she bought like a really sophisticated one, this painter program. And it had like hundreds of different brushes and layers and masks. And that was, we were, I got a copy of it and we were both using it. It was, that was probably 94 and mostly what I was using it for was just picking colors. Like I'd have, I'd, I'd have a, an image and I'd 
like just go like, well, what other kinds of greens are there? You know, and just because it would just have all these colors in it. And so I thought of it as a tool and then later got a scanner, was scanning in drawings, manipulating the drawings, projecting the drawings onto another piece of drawing paper, like drawing that out at scale, then like cutting those shapes out, laying them on the canvas and taping them off, you know, after I'd made this sort of maquette out of a drawing. Um, So it was both charcoal drawing and it was manipulated by a computer by because I was like, you know, shrinking it down to, you know, screen size and making sure these large paintings looked, understanding the composition, even though my studio wasn't that big, you know, to back away from it. So it was just a helpful tool. And then I learned, I then I was invited to do etching by Doris Simulink and her partner. And after that, Crown Point Press. And as I got into etching and printmaking, I realized that all the software that was coming out is is derivative of printmaking, like all the conceptual structuring of that software of fo- Photoshop and Painter because of the layers and the masks and the way the colors combine. And so then it just felt like, okay, well, this is just a printmaking tool. And then I was more and more printmaking through etching then to silkscreen. And it just uh, evolved pretty naturally. I got a digital projector instead of an opaque projector you know so you were you were doing projecting even in the late 90s early 90s oh, yeah early 90s oh that early oh wow i couldn't get it to work as accurately but uh, yeah i would do it with those really shitty you know like opaque projectors you could get it pearl paint or whatever you know like the, one, the ones that distorted yeah it was so distorting and things so i didn't use it to make the accurate final thing but i would make a little sketch and then back it up and be like how big do i want to make this painting do you know what i mean because i was always sketching in a sketchbook so it's like that was the, the most useful tool it was like do because you could sit and look and go like okay the, this is what it looks like at three by three feet well here's what it looks like at eight by ten feet oh that's interesting because you know, in the early 20th century, artists had to figure out how to scale up without that kind of tool. And some artists like Picasso never really got really great at it. And, and, and some did. <laughs> and, and it's funny, you know, you, you have, uh, we'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. But you have a terrific website that has thumbnails of, you know, pretty much all of your paintings by year. And I didn't know that projecting came in that early. And so looking at a year like you know, for example, 1995, I mean, I can see the references there to, to Hans Hoffman or to John McLaughlin. And I think maybe even to Tom Niskowski. And I never would have guessed projection might've been involved in those. So that's, it gives me fun new things to think about. Let's, let's shift to talking a little bit about some of the things your, your paintings have been about. I'm a landscape guy. So let's start with landscape and nature. And I want to start with a 1997 painting. It's untitled, as as your work often is. It's about seven-eighths of a light blue ground, and in the very bottom of the painting, there's a dark blue band, and then two blue bands that are slightly lighter above it. And there are black squiggles that read as birds, and they kind of have drop shadows beneath them. Do you have a vague idea of the painting I'm talking about? <laughs> what year What year do you have for that painting? 97? Do you think of paintings like that as an early interest in your oeuvre of landscape or as a more formal exercise? Well, I mean, all the landscapes, when it refers to landscape, you know, it's 
it's like seven different ideas of what the word landscape means. You know, it's like just, you know, is the format horizontal or vertical, you know, like in the history of landscape painting and then actual landscape, a photograph of a landscape, and then just how that type of space is read, you know, in whether it's an image like a painting or on a software drink or, you know, like the label or something, you know, like, I mean, not software, soft drink. Soft drink. Yeah. No, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's just like, it's so layered with image culture and IRL and, you know, metaphysical and mundane. So it's hard to say, I think that all my paintings go, I get, an idea that's like, I want to make a blah, blah, blah. And then it goes through this sort of like intense, like, I don't know what you call it. It's like more than just formal. It's a kind of like, you know, the word I typed in a lot in my notes before, you know, preparing to talk to you was the word complication <laughs> that it goes through a complication. So, cause it's both landscape and kind of like a Norman Zamet painting, you know, <laughs> With that particular painting, I had taken, I had gone to, for the very first time, I had taken my friends and I, it was Monique Prieto again, we went to the Yucatan and we're like in a palapa on the beach and I had taken my point and shoot camera and taken a picture of the ocean. And I think I was, you know, looking at the sky a lot. And so there was a there was a real memory of the sky of a particular kind of sky I'd never seen before because I'd never been to the Caribbean in my life before that. And yeah, I think then I was probably using those kid pics programs and I was thinking about the dimension on the painting versus depiction of dimension, literalness and painting. I think I remember that time in my life, my mom was hanging out a lot with me in LA. She saw the painting and said, I don't, know if there would be those shadows on the sky like so that and that like kind of like got me really excited because she was actually you know thinking of it as a real depiction even though she knew in her brain it was wrong I mean that's exactly how it works on me 21 years later right you know the shadows are 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 wrong but they're also you know pictorially really right (laughs) yeah I also thought about Definitely with that painting and paintings prior to that, thinking about that Barnett Newman photograph where you see him go up and put his like nose to the canvas so that he has his peripheral vision. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't, but I'm totally going to look it up now. <laughs> yeah, there were those big zip paintings, the ones that, like the giant horizontal ones that where he thought the preferred sight would be like pretty much like one foot in front of the painting. I do know the picture. I do know the picture. Yeah, and so I remember seeing this thing and seeing these pictures of the painting and going like, well, the body in front of the painting is just as much the painting as the painting. And so then I was with this particular painting you're talking about, I definitely thought, well, when, when people come to see the painting or when I see someone in front of that painting, it's a person in a landscape. Do you know what I mean? It's a person in front of a painting. 
That's interesting for a bunch of reasons, because in 1997, same year, you made kind of a very Barnett Newman painting of two paintings on walls facing in the opposite direction, in which the walls and the paintings are both at the extreme edges of the canvas. And then the other reason it's interesting to me is it is it you know, it's one of the earlier uses of that shadow, that drop shadow thing in your work, that move. And it turns a landscape into a Trump Loy painting and or brings Trump Loy into the landscape tradition and you know while there's a rich trump lloyd tradition in american painting and there's a very rich landscape tradition you know there's really only one other painting i can think of where 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 the two things come together and that's in a, a martin johnson heed painting that's at the wadsworth athenaeum in which it looks like a landscape is sitting on a table do you think of that painting as being kind of the, the introduction of that drop shadow move and was complicating landscape or complicating Trump Loy that way important to you? I mean, I think I was trying to mix together different. I don't know. I mean, at the time I was 26 years old. So I, you had a really good year when you were 26. I gotta say, <laughs> I mean, I was just trying to make paintings that sort of pushed up against people's idea of what a painting could be because I thought people were not considering painting as much as they should as being a, like, like a place where the real art could happen. So I definitely think I was probably like going, why can't Barnett Newman and an advertisement and a something else end up a Trump Loy, whatever, end up in the same painting. But I don't think I was thinking that literally like out loud. It was just something that had a kind of method of me working for a long time of like looking in gift shops and, you know, lowbrow girl culture kind of places, places you find stickers and, and the, and children's illustrations, which another is another place where I was finding women's art. There's a lot of children's book illustrators are like the top people in that field are women. It worked. I mean, it, 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 yeah, it I was just trying worked. to together. And I think that's a thing I've done forever and I think is a kind of mode of making is just having this heterogeneous surface you know that like you're you the viewer have to come and put it together like I'm gonna give you some disparate things that I see making an image that comes together but I'm not gonna like complete it for you 150 percent you're gonna have to stand in front of it walk and walk from 100 feet to 10 feet and you know think about these different modes of painting and why they're on the same surface. There's a painting you did that, that works that way the next year in 1998. It is a painting that uses a, a, a ground of, of blue and some vague silvery grayness to reference landscape and reflection and sky, where the sky and the surface of the implied water are all one. And then there's this kind of multicolor greens and yellows and browns, a complex of hills and a reflection of hills at the right-hand side of the painting. And it's one of the first examples in your work, I think, of, 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 of your playing with ref reflection and duplication within and reproduction within an artwork. Do you know the painting I'm, I'm speaking of? I'm thinking of a couple ones. I'm not sure. Is it like a, it's horizontally? It's vertical. This one's vertical. Although you do some similar things with a couple of horizontal paintings about the same time. I mean, we're probably. No, it's a vertical painting, but is the mirroring happening like at a, in a horizontal? Yeah. I think it was a painting I showed in Italy first. It was in Milan. 
and so you know this this idea of duplication and, and reproduction and and even reflection has has stayed in the work for a long time. Do you remember why those things became of interest? I don't remember why. I mean, I really just you know have a history of going to museums and looking around me and collecting ways that images are made and just sort of like I, I have like a lot of sketchbooks where I would just take notes about things I thought people or artists were doing to like really tell the story of the image or the painting they were making in a in a material way or a formal way I'm sure you know I was looking at Escher I'm sure I was looking at all kinds of a lot of um hokusai all the 20th century painting I couldn't tell you I mean, I guess it's in a simple way, it's like abstract, you know, it turns something that's an image into an abstraction when it's... And the the farther away you are from it, the more you can read it as an image, and the closer you are to it, you read it as an abstraction. Yeah. And I, 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 I do think I always am making abstract paintings. I don't think... I know that they allude to depicting things, but I feel like that's... Paintings are... I mean, I'm really, unfortunately, just like a formal person that way that I see them all as colors and shapes. That brings me to trees and branches coming into your work, which, which come in in the late 90s and stick around for a while. There is a, a an extremely long art history of, of trees, branches, plants in art. Were you interested in bringing them into your work through art history, or was it more kind of a direct personal experience of something? I don't really know. I know I was going on a lot of hikes. I know I was going to Descanso Gardens and Huntington Gardens and thinking about all the plant life. I think I was looking at a lot of Chinese painting. I was looking at... That's interesting because I think there's a lot of Chinese scroll painting in in, in your paintings of trees. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very rich territory. I mean, I guess it is an object and it is it is a figure and it is a landscape you know and it's also like brush strokes to me in 2003 you made an edition of trees that, that are embroidery on on silk linen and uh and they're pretty great there there is an american tradition in the 18th and 19th centuries of women who made landscapes, particularly with, uh, say, weeping willow trees in a very elegiac kind of way, out of embroidery. Did you know about those works? Were you interested in those works? Yeah. I mean, I had all these... I was going to the brand bookstore and buying all these books about craft and the history of cruel embroidery. And then I was making... Looking at, I think I had gone first to Victoria and Albert, so it was more British, but that is an influence on the American. But there's their um, textiles section. I don't know if you've been there. You like can pull out out of the. They're like in little drawers. You can pull out, and I just like this texture and the history and the images and I the first art or feeling of like real art that I made was with my grandma doing embroidery on the couch, you know? So, and I have, I have kept those and felt very proud of them, you know, that I had done this and she made like one, at least one a week for like 30 years. 
So then when you when you go to somewhere like the Met and and see those embroidered landscapes from from you know the, the late 1700s or early 1800s it must have been like this kind of mixture of personal experience and permission. Yeah, and I was also I don't know if you've seen also in the Asian art wing there there's often these things that you're like it's Im- it's mind-boggling these silk embroidery that is like the finest silk uh, landscapes that are so it's so many different cultures too not just American folk art and early anonymous art by women but like textiles from you know South America India Asia it's just like a rich tradition like in some ways more accessible than painting do you know what I mean yeah and and, and I mean I always think that art that looks like you want to touch it is acceptable in a way I would be accessible in a way that kind of increases accessibility exponentially because then you can imagine multiple sensory forms of access <laughs> and they and they live like that <laughs> and I also like the fact that like I had been making these thicker impasto marks and like when you put the stitch it's like a three-dimensional thing on the and it creates its own little subtle shadow in a real shadow you know like the like the impasto but the one the series you're talking about i did at the fabric workshop and yeah and so we started off i i also was really interested in there's another tradition of like in the 70s there was a lot of books craft books put out for like women who were like buying these sort of flowers sort of think mary mecco style dresses or pillows or something and then like at home you could like personalize yours by like adding embroidery in certain areas so there were like these and so I was thinking about silkscreen and embroidery together. So we got this nice raw silk and silkscreened a pretty, you know, layered and complicated silkscreen image of a tree. And then each one seven times per, all similar. And then each one of the seven is slightly different because it has different worms, different spiders, different leaf colors and stuff. Yeah, it's a wonderful way of complicating seriality, too. I mean, it complicates lots of things, which is part of why it's so much fun and part of why, it, I don't know, the, the, that might be your single most reproduced image or group of images. I don't know. I might be. I would be curious to know, but it's one that sure seems to pop up a lot. I also, I guess I also, now that I'm talking about it, I really like art that isn't afraid to go to like Middlebrow culture and look around and, you know, like isn't embarrassed. I like, I'm interested in that. And and you were probably interested in it right about that time because there were a number of images you made, um, paintings you made that could have been, you know, like the cover of a teen romance novel, right? Um, there's a 2003 painting of a couple embracing in front of a, a moon, maybe? You know, that's like torn from Hardy Boys meets Nancy Drew or something. <laughs> that's a phrase I should never use again. <laughs> In the years right after the, the, these tree embroideries we're talking about, you began to look, I think, uh, or at least it looks like, more at Matisse and Picasso. And I think maybe Matisse stuck around a little longer in your work. Yeah, Matisse was like a big influence. For some reason, I had this 2D design teacher at RISD who had a project which was turn a Matisse into a sculpture, or I guess it was 3D design. And so I had to think about, I can't remember, like this Matisse, I cut all the parts out in plywood and hung them spatially in the room. 
you know what I mean? Like coming out away from the wall, maybe like 12 feet so that like, you know, what's in front of what, so like almost physically going through the motions of what that push and pull idea was that Hans Hoffman ended up teaching us about with Matisse. So like this idea that foreground and background have to be in this sort of tension. And yeah, so I feel like for whatever reason, Matisse was, I think, a pretty big influence. Matisse and Fauvism, I think probably too. There's a there's a painting you made in, in 2006 that is an updating a, a riff on Matisse de Joie de Vivre, the, the painting at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. It's, it was at the stair, it was in the staircase at the old place, and it's kind of still there now, although not quite the same way, of course. It is about as directly as you have ever made another artist's painting or addressed another artist's painting. And so I wonder why why that one? Why why was that a painting you wanted to tackle so directly? Think I have to go back in time because it's, you know, it's not the painting I would pick today. But at the time, I think it was kind of like a perfect painting or something. Like I thought it was also had this anecdotal history and legacy of being an unreproduced painting. Like I don't know if you remember. Uh, Like yeah, that's right. Because Barnes wouldn't allow it, and then when he did, it was only in black and white for many, many years. Yeah, and so I thought, like, well, it's let's re- reproduce the unreproducible in color. But I also think it just was one of these paintings that was doing something that I had been thinking about for a long time, which is like a lot of paintings, I don't know, like kind of the center of the painting being empty. And in your, in a near version, it's even emptier than the Matisse is. There's, there's this tension between looking at two figures, kind of a satyr at a nymph type, type thing in the middle and the emptiness in the middle. So the, 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 the there's this, awesome contrast between tension and I mean mean, uh, figures and emptiness right next to each other yeah for some reason for a while like I I don't know like eight or ten years this sort of like empty void and two figures was like uh, something I would like anytime I'd see it I'd like get all excited because I think it started with those diptych that the monkeys that are looking at each other and there's like a big expanse of wall in between of them that was part of the site and then the two loose lip track drawing where the white pillow is sort of in between the two heads who are kind of embracing or kissing yeah and then the one you were talking about the hardy boy one the moon where the two their two noses are this you don't they're the same nose and that was sort of a void that nose was a void. And then there's the soccer players that are from opposite teams and they're embracing after the match um, because they play on the same, you know, regular season team. And I thought of like the space in between them, the shape they were, the, the negative space, sort of like a Charlie Ray idea as being like the void in between them. There's about that same time, three birds on a branch where the space between them on one side is almost a rectangle and the space between them on the other side is sort of a triangle. And there's a tension that, that works in a similar way there, too. It's it's So as you kind of uh, got into Matisse and Picasso, you began to play with some still life ideas such as fruit in a bowl. And pretty quickly in, in 2007, you make an extraordinary painting that has kind of a turquoise lattice bowl at the bottom of the painting. I mean, this is an untitled work, hence, hence my description. We'll have images on manpodcast.com. Turquoise bowl of fruit at the bottom, a bunch of fruit-like forms above it, like an eggplant-ish form and a banana-ish form, and some colorful circles stacked up above the bowl. 
and all of the fruit are jam-pressed to the picture plane, and they are surrounded by a bunch of kind of white grid-like things with some um, drop shadows behind them. Do you know the painting I'm talking about? Try to remember. I think it's in the, I think the Rubels have it, if that helps. Oh, does it look like there's like four cards at the bottom? No, there are a couple maybe little American flags coming out of the fruit. Yeah, like that, I sort of made that kind of a painting a few times. So that was maybe one of the later ones. That's the darker one. Yes, you did. You did make it a few times. So I, I'm curious about where that painting came from. It's one of the first examples of grids coming into your work explicitly. They're tentative grids. You're kind of playing with the idea rather than making the fruit sit within the grid like a Cezanne might. But it's this kind of moment of transition. And I wonder where that came from and how you know, if it really was a moment of transition. Probably. I mean, I don't, I think I started looking at a lot of Cezanne. I sort of like what I had one of these, I don't remember how old I was, but I liked Cezanne. Okay. And I'd never really got it. And then I went to the national gallery. I think it was, it was either there or Philadelphia. Maybe it was a national gallery. I can't remember. Maybe it was Philadelphia. I saw a bunch of Cezanne. It was sort of like someone turned the light switch on and I was like, just started really seeing what he was doing. And I thought I saw how much more complex and interesting it was than Matisse, who I probably had looked at like in terms of these like formal ideas. And I just got really into it and I got into still life. And I'm sure I was thinking about like the wallpaper coming into the still life. And isn't the, isn't the grid you're talking about, not a grid, isn't it like diagonal? Yeah, it's kind of diagonal. It's kind of, it's a little cartoony decorative. It's kind of, it's much thicker paint than, uh, much more impostoed paint than the fruit-like forms. But it's the, it's, I mean, I think it's a, it's just a, it's pretty close to the first playing, playing, emphasis on playing with the, with the grid you do. It's kind of the beginning of the thing working its way in. I feel like there was something in a Gisela Capitaine show, like, that was a big landscape that I put like a faint, I think it's just a way to flatten. I think that's how it works in the painting for sure. the back of the painting without it just dropping out, you know, like, and pushing it forward. That's exactly what it does. Because you, you even do it in the negative space between the fruit. Yeah, it's a cool move. It's a, it's a move that sticks around for, you know, the next 10 or 11 years, um, although you use it in different ways, of course. And and also within this this, this painting, there's a... There's a lot of materiality within the paint, you know, it's, it's, and in this part of your career, you're really emphasizing the materiality of paint. You're knifing it on in gobs in some places, you're building impasto, you're kind of using it both as a material and as a way to build an image. How has your interest in paint and how to use it changed over the years? Or do you think it's remained constant? It just comes out differently. <laughs> No, I mean, I think, I think that different times I've gotten more into like images, you know, but it, yeah, I mean, I think there was some conscious turning towards like, what can this material stuff do? And just sort of privileging that maybe around 2009. Like when I started like going like, you know, really thinking about, I remember talking to people about it and everybody being like, what are you talking about? Like uh, in like 2009 to 2011, when I was like, I would just be like, I'm really interested in the, in materiality and stuff. And it just sounded so retrograde. There's a sketchiness to the paintings of that period, you know, of, of the, the action of the hand being visible. 
in a way that probably was very retrograde <laughs> in 2009. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I started, I did that still life that got, got connected with the trellis that sort of like, yeah, I do. I do. I know exactly the one it, they, they kind of look like playing cards, only they're not. Um, and there's a trellis in the foreground. It's kind of lavender and there's kind of a Miami vice colored lattice worker grid in the background. Is that, that's the one the Rubels have. Is that what you're talking about? That's the one the De La Cruz's have. In, oh, De La, okay. Yeah. Now talking about uh, that one was one of the first ones I used silkscreen on the painting because that's, I want, I think that one has a blue grid at the bottom. Yep. Yep. Like a lavenderish bluish. Yeah. And then a bunch of them up at the top that are kind of more diagonal. And that one was really pivotal in some ways because I did, paint the painting and then go, I need to add this thing. And we unstretched it, put it on a table. I ordered a silk screen. We did it in the studio because I was like, my hand can't make the thing as mechanical looking as I need it to look as a sort of distinction from the brushy mark. Which are super brushy in this painting. I mean, they look like scribbly brushy. Yeah. Like I wanted something that was like a super hard edge and I didn't want to, and that, and even if you tape off, because prior to that, I was like using a lot of tape. Like if you tape off a grid, you're the human, whatever error of a grid is for some reason, your, your eye notices it. Like, so yeah, that I remember that. And then no, but the one I was thinking about was the, the seven different paintings that hang on the wall. And then in between them is this collaged, wooden thing that's like a grid that goes in and out it's 2010 oh i do i think i do know i do know that one it's uh it's a little bit later it's 2012 yeah i do know it i started it like t- 2010 i do know that painting it's uh the, I, and, and all of the panels if you will are connected by this trellisy lattice worky grid physically connected all you know all of this is is um you know this is the dullest question in world history but why did the grid become interesting to you in these years there's one there's a painting you made in 2011 that's very Jennifer Bartlett-y, a compilation of 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 things going on in squares all put together as as one artwork that you do a couple times in these years but but so I don't know if if if, if Jenner, Jennifer Bartlett's use of grids maybe pushed you in that direction or if I mean, she had a big piece at the Cleveland Museum of Art I remember and I always thought oh this is a really great artist you know growing up I don't I think the grid was just something that is just sort of a inherent in the structure of the of the stretcher bar and in the history of painting and it just I just thought okay here's another thing because you do make a famous, or at least, I don't know, maybe it's not famous, but it's a great early painting about the stretcher bar, where you have a rose, I think it is, that is... So it was there early, it's just that maybe you wandered away from it and came back to it later? Yeah. Almost nothing in your oeuvre has held your interest like the grid has. I mean, you've been making paintings about using riffing on the grid now for six or seven or eight years. Don't you think... I feel like flowers are there like quite a bit. Flowers are there quite a bit. Flowers are there quite a bit. But I would say the... I would say like brushstroke, flower, grid. Yeah, there's a lot of motifs. So those things that have interested you for the longest, why do you think they have stuck with you? Why do you think you have stuck with them? Is there something, is there a reason or is it just they're malleable and they absorb other ideas well? Well, I think from my distorted perspective, they are the basis of painting or something. I think I really probably ultimately like a still life painter, like this idea of the heterogeneous 
arrangement of things on a table, you know, even though I make a landscape or I make some other, a portrait, it's still this conceptually, it's like that, that history where it's like the disparate parts make up the whole. And I don't, I don't know. I guess I, I see those as all being pretty related to that somehow connected to that is that all of those things are things that you can jam up against a picture plane flowers for whatever reason. And then throughout lots of art history have, have worked really well jammed up against the picture plane grids too, for obvious reasons. Right. I want to kind of move toward wrapping up by asking you about something that we started more or less almost started with. And that was drop shadows and how, how the drop shadows came in in those early landscape paintings and how they're still in often when you make paintings of grids and flowers. What is it about, like, I never really, I mean, nobody, nobody sits around thinking about drop shadows, I don't think, except maybe you. What about them, what about them works almost no matter how you use them? Why is it a, a place you can keep going and finding things? I think they exist in the history of painting for a really long time. Like I found an El Greco at the Cleveland Museum of Art. Oh my God, I know that painting. It's a crucifixion and it's huge. It has huge. a drop shadow on the, on the sky from the crucifix. You know what I mean? It's like, it's crazy. I mean, so yeah, it's, I mean, I think you could just say shadow, extreme shadow, non-realistic shadow. I don't know what you want to call it, but yeah, we call them drop shadows, but it's like, something that provides some shallow depth of field. I mean, I think shadow and light and color and scale, these are like the basis of what painting is at the most material. I, I don't know. I just think that's what I'm, that's where you start messing around. So just because the drop shadows in painting come from Catholic, capital C, Catholic representation of figures or from Dutch still life painting, there's no reason they can't, you have found or you tested and experimented and found there's no reason they can't also work when you're playing with super contemporary things like paintings that reference printing or the grid, just making them, making them work now because it's always worked in the past. Yeah. I mean, or just like using them to see, you know, what kind of painting you can make if you put these things all in the same field together, you know, just just sort of stretch the stretch the space a little bit more. I love it. Laura Owens, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to hearing more podcasts. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tied wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which she achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. Ruth Asawa Life's Work is on view through February 16th, 2019. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Come to the Getty Center for a respite from the holiday madness. Three new exhibitions open this month, Monumentality, Spectacular Mysteries, and Artful Words, while major exhibitions Sally Mann and the Renaissance Nude continue, along with a Queen's Treasure from Versailles, The Art of Three Faiths, and other focused shows. 
Learn more about what to see and do at the Getty this December at getty.edu 360. Welcome back. Next up, Mark Lamster. His new book is The Man in the Glass House, Philip Johnson, Architect of the Modern Century. The book, which was published by Little Brown and Company, reveals how important the New York art world was to Johnson's professional rise and how Johnson's affiliation with Nazis almost ended his architecture career before it really began. Lamster is the architecture critic of the Dallas Morning News, and he teaches at the University of Texas at Arlington. His previous books include Master of Shadows, The Secret Diplomatic Career of Peter Paul Rubens, one of my favorites, and Spalding's World Tour, the epic adventure that took baseball around the globe and made it America's game. Mark Lamster, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. Philip Johnson was involved in the Museum of Modern Art in New York from, from quite near the beginning as a curator, as an architect, as a donor, as, as, a, as a board member, and probably other things I'm forgetting. At one point in the book, you note that Johnson, quote, deputized his wallet in support of his career. And of all of the many ways he did that, MoMA was surely among the most brazen. How did Johnson's art buying and his relationships with artists and architects and his career at the museum overlap? Well, from the very beginning, they overlapped and were congruent. It was his wealth that really allowed him to become involved in the museum. When the museum was founded, Alfred Barr wanted to have an architectural program, but really wasn't sure what it would be. And this sort of Johnson ran into him at about this time when Barr was still teaching at Wellesley. And Johnson uh, had just become interested in architecture while being a student uh, at Harvard. He was a student for like seven years at Harvard. He had kept like sort of uh, having these uh, fallouts and fall-ins at, at school because of his own mental issues. He'd had to take and health issues. He was, he, it took him a long time to get, get through school and he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. And he finally kind of lands on architectural history as something he's interested in. And so he's able to learn about this thing, this new modern architecture, because he's actually able to pay for his own travel to Europe and learn about architecture that way, traveling first with John McAndrew, uh, who had become a curator at MoMA, and then Henry Russell Hitchcock, who would do, who had who had written like the 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 principal text on modern architecture to that point, and who would collaborate with him on. Uh, the international style book and the exhibition that would become known by that name, which was actually called the Modern Architecture International Exhibition in 1932, the first really big architecture show at MoMA. So that's sort of how the the relationship started. And of course, Johnson's wealth was necessary and deputized, as as you say. I say from the very start is critical to that to that relationship. And, and over the course of the years, he wouldn't take a salary. He would pay for installations. He would pay, uh, use his connections to uh, drum up financial support for his exhibitions. He would buy art and donate it to the museum. Sometimes he would buy art and say he was going to donate to the museums and then only do so much, much later. The museum, uh, Alfred Barr and, and Johnson, and Barr being the, the, the chief curator and, and sort of 
brains of MoMA in its early years, the, the, the curatorial brains and directorial brains. That they had a very, very close relationship, and but but not uh, always pure, shall we say. Sorry, that was a long rambling answer to your answer, but how Johnson deputized his wallet to advance his career is a 528-page book that I've just written. So... Yeah, it's there on 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 practically every page. I should uh, note quickly that Johnson's wealth uh, came from his father. He inherited it. His 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 father his father basically handed Johnson his inheritance when Johnson was still in his what late teens or twenties, early twenties, and uh, and Johnson wielded wielded it. Right. Yeah. And even yeah, it came when he was in college. So and all of a sudden, the Johnson family had been wealthy. Uh, his father was a corporate attorney, but all of a sudden Johnson became incredibly wealthy. And actually, the story the story hadn't really been told before, but it really was a matter of insider training that had had propelled him to this incredible wealth. His father had been the corporate attorney for basically the founder of Alcoa, and through a very complex situation, which that. You know, that that founder had died, and Johnson's father had become the ran the estate uh, that controlled a lot of the Alcoa stock, and for a variety of reasons, he had to unload it. And at that very moment, he turned a lot of it over to his son to avoid impropriety. And then, in very short order after he had done this, the stock just absolutely skyrocketed. This was in, in 1924. And then all of a sudden, the stock, which had been trading, you know, for a few dollars was like worth 200 bucks. And this is, you know, the jazz age. And Johnson became wildly wealthy as a very young man, much more, much wealthier all of a sudden than anybody else in his own family. So this was sort of the root of Johnson's fortune that he carried with him throughout his life and insulated him from all of the problems that normal Americans were faced with, especially during the Depression. You mentioned earlier that Johnson traveled to Europe and in style, and that was crucial to his bringing the Miesian style to the United States via residential architecture initially, and then and then via other other projects. Do you have a sense of how important Johnson was or wasn't in the develop uh, in the development of minimalism and minimalism migrating into visual art over the course of the nineteen fifties and early sixties? I think he was. And minimalism is a an interesting. I'm not quite sure what we mean by minimal, minimalism uh, of the '60s. He was an advocate of of some of those minimalist artists. Minimalism wasn't, especially Donald Judd. He had a Donald Judd piece on not a very good one actually on um, the, at the Glass House. It's pretty terrible. It looks it's kind of looks more like a sort of a cistern than a, an art object. I know I visited a couple of years ago with Phyllis Lambert, who had worked on him on the greatest of minimal minimalist objects, the Seagram building. She had commissioned uh, the Seagram from Mies, on which Johnson was uh, a partner. Um, and she, she was appalled by it. She thought, uh, wondered what, what it was and why it was sitting in the lawn, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, was he seeing, you know, was his bringing of Miesian architectural language to the United States something that, that migrated into other parts of the culture, particularly visual art? 
Well, well absolutely, right? I mean, uh, this, I think that this starts really early in the 30s when Johnson is sort of introduces this idea of what modernism can be, this sort of style, very, you know, the international style, the sleek Miesian design into the, the consciousness of America. And over the course of years, and then in the post-war years, as this develops, he becomes more interested in art of of a modernist abstract vein. I don't think the minimalists per se weren't really the chief among the, the, the artists he collected. I think you know, he did collect the abstract expressionists, Rothko, etc., but and some of the, the minimalists. But I think... I think he was more of a, it was really, I think that with Johns and Rauschenberg and the, the development of and Warhol and the sort of emergence of a pop sensibility that is more in line with the sort of his philosophy and his development as an arts patron. And of course he had been a patron before that and he was interested in many quote unquote minimalist artists but I think his heart was really in, in another direction. In, 19, in 1963, he told Time magazine that pop art was, quote, the most important art movement in the world today. How do you think pop art, if it did, influence his architectural practice? Is it useful or helpful to him in thinking through the ideas that became what we now call postmodernism? Well, I think they were they were working hand, they were hand in glove, right? I mean, this is at the same time. Uh, you know, this, these artists were responding to the cold severity of abstraction of modernism, you know, conventional modernism, and they were they were attacking it in the same way that you know uh, Venturi say was attacking modernism and and the conceits of that field. Here they were bringing humor and exaggeration and self-reference into a field that had been incredibly formalized and self-referential. So I think it's part of the same conversation. And Johnson understood that right away. And I think one of the things that people misunderstand about Johnson is he's often considered just like a tool of Alfred Barr, his purchases of art have often been seen as just Barr told him to buy things for the museum and Johnson just followed instructions from Barr. And there were times that was true, for sure, especially early in their relationship. But it, it's kind of unfair. I think it changed. There was a, a period and especially after the emergence of the sort of pop artists where that relationship kind of flipped and Johnson's had developed his own taste and his own confidence in his own taste. And he saw these artists, the Johns, the Rauschenbergs uh, and Warhol especially, and they spoke to him. And, you know, yes, there were cases, most famously the flag that he had purchased for MoMA, where he would have been asked to purchase paintings for MoMA by Barr. But the flag painting, it, he kept it. He didn't give it to MoMA even when they had wanted it. And I think that's illustrative of 
not just a, a sense of lack of generosity, because he was extremely generous to the museum with his, his with art um, until a certain point. But I think it, it demonstrated how he had had matured intellectually as, as a patron. And one of the people I spoke to, you know, and I spoke to a lot of people in researching this book. So I talked to, talk to Ivan Karp, who had been obviously a prominent dealer in that period and at Castelli. And, and he was adamant that Johnson had always been uh, kept his own counsel and was not a tool of anyone and, and was a master of his own taste. And Karp, of course, was really smart figure and not not someone to beat around the bush on these things so i think think the conventional wisdom on johnson and this so of course the the idea that johnson was just a tool of bar fit into this other wider narrative of johnson never having an original idea he was you know an acolyte of mies and then he changed you know he he would uh, intellectually he would you know blow with the winds so with the art buying it was another could be seen as another reflection of that that nature of not having his own ideas and just doing whatever, you know, seemed popular at the time. And I, I think that's, there's truth to it, but it's also not true. Yeah, there's some great stories in the book about how, how certain key buildings happened. And it's easy to find parallels between some of those stories and some stories of how artists of, of, of Johnson's generation made work. Let's talk about Johnson, the art museum architect. I guess he becomes prominent as an art museum architect in about the late 1950s and into the 60s. And the first, I guess, really prominent or major commission he gets, correct me if I'm wrong, was the Munson-Williams-Proctor in Utica in New York. It's probably a great example of how Johnson borrows from Mies, adapts it to the moment, adapts Mies to the moment, to the time, to construction materials. Was that a successful building for him? In what ways was it successful? In what ways was it not? Actually, I'm going to take your argument and actually dispute it slightly and say that really Johnson's first architectural museum architecture came, of course, with MoMA. It was still Miesian, but he he designed... These were two additions, the additions, first, the Grace Rainey Rogers addition on the west side of the Museum of uh, Original Building of the Museum of Modern Art. That building is now destroyed. And the still standing later east edition, the west edition, the, Gray, the Grace Rainey Rogers wing was really one of the most sophisticated building, modern buildings built until that time in New York City. You know, it's really beautiful, Mesian, black glass and steel, you know, structure. Well before the Seagram building, it was, you know, I think it was 1951, um, before even Lever or the UN, if memory serves. So it was sort of a landmark New York City building that is completely forgotten and really extraordinary. And then later followed up with the on the opposite side of the original, you know, stone and whatever Goodman and Stone uh, MoMA building with the, the other wing, which was sort of a, also black and steel, but sort of had these uh, the windows were sort of curved. They looked like television sets. It's still there. I actually really love it. I think it's great. Uh, so these were his first two experiments in museum building, and in, in, in addition to other manipulations of 
MoMA, which continued throughout his career until the 70s, uh, when he was dispensed with by MoMA, causing a massive fracture with the museum. But yeah, so, but okay, so then he, he continues on and, and then we get these a series of museums uh, that start to happen. Munson William Proctor, which I think, you know, obviously I think the, the least successful of the three because it's the most imitative of of Mies. This is followed by the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth, which I think is a really wildly underrated museum. I really love it. And then the Sheldon Art Museum in Lincoln, Nebraska, or Sheldon Art Gallery, now it's a museum. Uh, basically very three very similar structures and scale and size, symmetrical, Miesian, sort of a, they're all classical, neo-modern, classicized, modern buildings with either stone or concrete facades, very formal, elegant, Mies-inspired, but, but also moving in a direction that Mies would never, never go in. Uh, today, they were known, we call this style the ballet school or the new formalism. You'd see it a lot with the architects like Edgar L. Stone and Minoru Yamasaki. I think people are finally starting to appreciate some of this architecture that had been for many, many, many years until now really uh, dismissed by critics. And I think is getting a fresh look. And I think rightly and my favorite of these is for sure Eamon Carter. Because of it's a beautiful object, it's made, I, and I visit it all the time because it's right here in Fort Worth and I live in Dallas. It's made of this beautiful Texas shellstone with these Im fossil imprints in it. And it's kind of, it's just an immaculate building. But what's really interesting and special about it is that building was first supposed to be a memorial for Eamon Carter, who was sort of the big political uh, figure, uh, the uh, leader of of Fort Worth. He owned the, 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 he was the publisher of the newspaper, developer, et cetera, and it was going to be a memorial to him. But then uh, his daughter decided it should become a museum, has his collection, collection of American art, but specializing in the Western art of Remington and Charles Russell. And typically this work is shown in like period rooms, very kitschy Western themed rooms. But Johnson's, you know, the Eamon Carter Johnson's design showed them in very MoMA style modern art galleries. And it gave this sort of Western art, it gives this Western art this sort of new dignity that I don't think it gets when it's in all these kitschy spaces. You really, it gives it a power that it doesn't have elsewhere. And in addition to doing the architecture of the museum, he also was influential in actually helping the museum develop its collection. So he helped bring Nicholas de Harnincourt, uh, Nicholas? Uh, when I, uh, the director from the museum, uh, from MoMA, down to help uh, Eamon Carter, you know, figure out what a museum should be and how you run a museum, something he would also do when he would, in the 70s, build the Corpus Christi Museum of South Texas. So, and there, basically, not only did he build the building, but he curated the entire first show with his partner, David Whitney. So, 
this idea that, yes, he was a museum architect, but the museum was always closely tied in to his collecting in, with, with design and with thinking. And there were a lot of innovations in these in these buildings. I think the Sheldon Gallery, I think, is is a in Lincoln is another favorite. He covered all the walls with fabric so that it would be easy to mount and demount and move around paintings on the walls. And then uh, the ceiling has these light fixtures that look like giant buttons, like coat buttons, and um, uh, it's kind of very fabulous project. That was great. Uh, Renee Darnancourt at uh, Renee Darnancourt at, at MoMA. I'm sorry. It's Nicholas. There is a Nicholas Darnancourt from somewhere else. Some, maybe it's some, some other. I, I don't know where why I'd say that. I always do that. I, I, I love that you love that the Eamon Carter, too. I think it's an extraordinary place to look at art. And one of the things there that I think is really successful and that I think has really come back into museum architecture in the last decade or so after having been gone for a while is the design and building out of spaces of significantly different scale so that curators don't have kind of one size fit fits all voids but there are smaller places to see works on paper or sculpture or or paintings and then there are larger places to see larger things and that there is this range of of opportunity for work to look its best rather than kind of a one-size-fits-all approach that's a fabulous point. Yeah, definitely. Finally, you know, you mentioned a number of Johnson's art museum high points. What about beyond his work? What impact has he had on museum architecture and visitor experience, art presentation, as a result of the museums he built? Well, I think the entire idea of what a modern art museum is and how we look at work in museums is in many ways a function of Johnson's designs, especially the way works of design are presented in museums and architecture. But, you know, I think one of the most influential things in his entire career and largely overlooked was an exhibition he put on at MoMA in 1934, the Machine Art Exhibition. This was really the first major American exhibition where machine art or, uh, excuse me, industrial design and objects uh, were presented as works of art. And you had everything from springs and ball bearings to a waffle maker and a dentist's chair were put on display at MoMA. And it wasn't just that the idea that everyday objects could be artistic, which was new, but it was how they were presented, which was on white pedestals, you know, on in in a behind glass this was you know as works as objects of art treating them as objects of art later bringing in cars and automobiles and going to treat automobiles in, in as objects of art so the entire idea of architecture and design as a museum worthy subject this was kind of new especially in, even architecture i mean look in 1930 in New York, 
1930, you know, you, you want to see the new architecture, just walk outside, right? There's like, there's the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building. What, what, what new? What, that's the new architecture, right? You're in New York City. You know, architecture wasn't a conventional subject for a museum, right? Museums were where wealthy patrons put the objects, you know, the, the, the paintings that they had purchased so that their friends could come and look at them and talk about what great taste they had. It wasn't really where you went to look at architecture. And that starts to change with Johnson. He's, he's shifting the subject and he's, and he's helping to determine the way that subject is going to be presented. And it's not all positive either, right? I mean, this is a very formal, art historical way, asocial, apolitical way of presenting these objects. So, you know, from the very outset, it is a loaded idea of what modernism, what architecture and what the museum is and how the museum space can be marshaled. We'll have a link to uh, MoMA's page for that 1934 machine art show in their uh, exhibition archive section of their website. It's pretty, uh, pretty fascinating stuff. Mark Lamster, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.